Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding And we began to study this passage last week. I have some applications that I'd like to draw out, but we'll just review a bit by reading it. Uh, what took place. The primary thing that we underscored last week was that in a very difficult situation that Ruth and Boaz find themselves uh, at, at Naomi's uh, instigation, at Naomi's plan, whatever we think about that plan, good or bad, they find themselves in a very difficult circumstance, a circumstance that would be interpreted by anybody that looked on as possibly compromised uh, due to the Reputation of threshing floors uh, due to the fact that prostitutes would come to threshing floors, uh, due to the fact that it underscores the text, not even giving their name, but to kind of show how everything was undercover, everything was incognito. It kept calling them the man and the woman and underscoring there was a man and a woman lying together at night on the threshing floor. And yet in this context, they showed forth hesed. That word, H-E-S-E-D, if you haven't been able to get clear on the spelling of it, if we were Hebrew, we would say something more like chesed. But who wants to say that, right? Um, So we just say simply chesed. It's that word that you'll find, for instance, in Psalm 136 that's repeated in every verse. The mercy of the Lord endures forever. It's the chesed of the Lord. That unfailing, committed love of God. And this book is about how that love of God manifests itself in people to restore empty and broken Naomi, who has nothing, to restore her to fullness and grace. God uses His people uh, to show forth His Hesed love. And they act with Hesed love and faithfulness in this circumstance. That's the basic teaching of the, the chapter. Now, let's read it, and then we'll dive in. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that is to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. We pointed out that this is likely putting aside her uh, widow's clothes, her her mourning clothes. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet or possibly legs and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. 
He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She was asking him to marry her. She didn't wait for him to say anything like Naomi said. She just came out and said it to let him know this is what she was there for. And her position lying at his feet was a physical request. And now she just followed it through with the verbal. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first. That is her first kindness in her faithfulness to Naomi. In that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but rose before one could recognize another. And he said, likely to himself, let it not be known uh, that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, on her back. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And that's kind of a little enclosure to when... Uh, Naomi cried out in chapter 1 that I'm no longer, I went out full, but now I'm empty. And here's the statement, you're empty no more. You're empty no more. God has made you abound. She replied in verse 18, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Let us pray. Lord, bless us with understanding of your word. Bless us, Lord, with joy over your word. Bless us and show us yourself. Show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, You kids may remember the first time you ever jumped into the water, not just from the safe side of the pool, but you ventured on to the diving board. You remember that day? Pretty scary to be on a diving board and you're standing over water and, as I recall, you feel like you're just miles above the water. And you feel like if I jump, it's going to hurt. It might really hurt. And you might even be thinking, I don't want to do this. And finally you say, I can't, I can't. And you would turn around and go back except for one thing. Your daddy is in the water. Your daddy's in the water right there. And so instead of just jumping out into the middle of a pool and who knows what's going to happen to you, can you get back to the side? What's going to happen if it hurts? What if you go under... My daddy's there. And he's saying, come on, Sam. Come on, Mary. Just jump right in. I'll be right here. You'll jump right here. That's what I'd say to me. You jump right here. And then your kids would say, are you going to stay right there? You know, (laughs) I want to jump. Can I jump right there right now? Yes, you right next to me. They want to know just that, that you're going to immediately grab hold of them. You'll not let them sink. You'll not let them die. Uh, You will carry them to the side if need be. And so it transforms everything as long as daddy is there. Now, kids, think how funny it would be if at my age I was still scared like that. And I'm walking to the end of the 
board, and there's my daddy who's in his 80s, you know? And he's saying, come on, Darwin, you can do it. No, I'm scared, I'm scared. You know, that would be funny for you kids if you could see that. Um, You just imagine it, okay? Um, But what's interesting about uh, our lives as human beings, whether we're adults or children, is that in that sense, we get to be children forever. We get to be children forever, cared for by our Father. We have God always, in a sense, right there in the water. Every time you jump into something that's hard, you jump into something that's scary, it calls for sacrifice, something in which you could get hurt emotionally or even physically, like persecution, which so many Christians have endured over the years that you know He is right there in everything you do. The great covenant promises of the Scripture center on that one thing. It's probably the kind of core promise of the Scripture. I will be with you. Even to the grown men of Joshua's day, when they're going into the land of Canaan to fight the enemy, what does He say? Don't be afraid. I'll be with you. I'll be right there. Sounds kind of like a daddy in a pool to me. (laughs) Don't worry. So we get to be children in that sense with God always taking care of us, always watching over us. And as the title this morning indicates, I want to talk about three things. Risk, R-I-S-K, well, we start with rest, R-E-S-T, rest, risk, and uh, covering. And I want to show in the end that we risk everything because we have rest in Him and we have a covering in Him. He provides for us such resources in His love that we can just spend ourselves for the sake of, of Jesus Christ. But first, the word rest, this, this kind of shoots by you quickly as you read it, but it's a very important biblical word that is used here in chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you? The, the word is actually uh, Manoach. And if we had time, I'd like to even go into Judges and talk about Samson's daddy's name, which means rest and all, but we just don't have time for that. But this is a very big word in Scripture. It's the very word that Naomi used earlier in chapter 1 when she was praying to God that her daughters might find rest in the home of a husband. But this word rest is used in a wider way to speak of the rest of God's salvation. For instance, we could do many texts, but I'll just give one. God says to Moses in the wilderness, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So this word Manoah stands for all the goodness that he's going to pour out into the lives of his people in the promised land. But just as it's a sign for his salvation, judgment means that we lose that rest. So, when in Psalm 95, God's talking about when He judged Israel and that whole generation ended up dead in the wilderness, this is how He puts it. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So, enjoying His rest forever is salvation consummated, but being cast out and refused His rest 
is judgment. And what's interesting is when she enters into the rest of a home with Boaz, she in turn has a descendant that we know, David, and David brings rest to Israel. So the rest that she's going to enter into, uh, tasting as a token of God's salvation, uh, the rest of this home and this relationship with Boaz. It's a little token for the rest of God's people, and it even previews the rest that, will, that David will bring. In, later in 1 Kings, here's Solomon talking about that rest. He says, Blessed be the Lord who's given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. But what's also fascinating about this word is 200 years before Christ, the Hebrews translated into the Greek, okay? That Greek word is used then, the same word here that's used in Ruth by Jesus. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Literally, I will rest you, okay? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so this rest is a central part of what God gives us. Rest in knowing his forgiveness, rest in being accepted by God, rest in knowing he has a purpose for my life, rest in knowing he is present to me from now on, rest in knowing that even the the mistakes I've made in my life, he is really going to use all things and work them together for good. That is rest. That is peace. That is resting, relaxing in the mighty, comprehensive grace of God. It is rest in his purpose that will finally land me in the new heavens and the new earth. And what a contrast to what we read in the last book of the Bible. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image. That's a frightening image. No rest forever, day and night. See, it is only in relationship to the God that made you and the specific salvation He works out in His Son for our restoration that we finally find rest as human beings. We're made to be in that relationship. He is... He's made his salvation perfect in every way for us. So I urge you, uh, this rest that is uh, such a big word that Ruth enjoyed as God brought blessing into her life, it speaks of ultimate rest in Jesus Christ. But also a a big uh, aspect, a large aspect of what happens in chapter 3 that commentaries uh, point out again and again is the risk that she took in obeying Naomi. She took the risk of being seen and her reputation being destroyed. She took the risk of being attacked at night. She took the risk of Boaz uh, abusing his privilege. Uh, She took the risk of his misunderstanding her and even bringing dishonor to her. She still, though she'd she'd been there a few weeks, she maybe had some sense that her reputation was growing in the place but in Bethlehem, but basically she's a foreigner. 
And she just threw herself out there. And, and the reason she did was the same heart that's expressed in chapter 1. I want Yahweh to be my God, and I want His people to be my people. And she put herself, as, as uh, Boaz himself put it, you have put yourself under His wings. And I believe that night she put herself under the wings of God. She put herself in the hands of Yahweh, and she risked everything knowing, I'm in your hands, and whatever happens to me, it's fine, because I am in your hands, almighty Yahweh. You're the whole reason I left Moab. You're the whole reason I left family and home. For her, just one more risk, right? Her life was out there. She's sacrificing everything for him. And it's uh, interesting, this kind of risk is called for if we're going to live out Hesed love. Hesed love sacrifices, and Hesed love, this committed love, doesn't turn away no matter what. Uh, Brian Davis uh, sent to me, man, he's getting a lot of airtime today, but um, <clears throat> but uh, Brian sent to me, I've read a little bit in the Jesus Storybook Bible, just a marvelous book uh, that that tells the story of the whole Bible and, and preaches Christ all the way through in such a wonderful, wonderful way. But it translates this word hesed in this way. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's a good translation. <laughs> this is hesed. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's what we see with Ruth. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, just manifesting the Hesed love of God in any and all circumstance, sacrificing whatever she has to. And one commentator, Hubbard, says, In conclusion, taken as a whole, the chapter taught that God carried out His work through believers who seize the unexpected opportunities as gifts from God. And so I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the example of this woman who was a pagan worshiper and is transformed by God into this woman of Hesed love. If God did it then, before the time of Christ, maybe He can do it for us and make us have this kind of character as well. Risk yourself, therefore, to love others. Risk a loss of time. Risk your propped-up self-protection. Men, I call you to risk yourselves in loving your wife. How many of us men will not face looming problems in our marriages that have crippled real intimacy and openness and honesty? Ladies, do I have an amen? No, oh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Problems that have gone on for years. We don't like to admit it. We cover over our inability to love our wives with pride and anger, shortness, silence, distance, more work, more home projects, more exercise, more recreation, more TV. Anything but more love to our wives. Understanding them, seeking them out. And many times men are crippled with Fear. It doesn't look like that to women many times. But men are crippled because it's such a hard area to try to meet the needs of this woman. Or crippled because of unbelief, crippled because of hardness of heart. We need to risk our lives for the sake of our wives. Um, 
We must risk ourselves as well to love our neighbors, to show hospitality, even to meet them in many cases, to learn their names, to find out about their families and their problems. Risk ourselves to share the gospel, to minister to the poor and the dispossessed, to minister, for instance, as we have them in Fort Worth, to refugees from other nations that live here. Who are the people in the world that haven't heard the gospel? How are we risking ourselves for them? This passage calls for us to ask, how am I risking myself for the good of people? In the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, it was the first general council of the church. And uh, they were gathered together, a couple of hundred of bishops, and then each got to have some priests and deacons. And so there are about 1,500 men at this gathering. And the interesting thing about this in 325 AD is that until about 10 or 20 years before this, persecution was still alive and well in the Roman Empire. And so in the gathering of these bishops, you would see men come into the room missing an arm, crippled, with one eye. These are men that were, as they were termed, confessors. They confessed Christ even to the point of suffering. Here were the men of the first council of Christ who had gone through this suffering. And the thing that strikes me about that is if they hadn't done that, confessing Christ and suffering and dying as Christians did for the first 300 years then Christianity wouldn't have taken hold in Western culture. Then the whole world wouldn't have been what it is. You and I would not know the gospel likely. It's because of that suffering, that risk of everything that affects the whole world even today because of all the... uh, What language do people want in the world? What opens up the opportunity for the gospel again and again? It's English. That's all a result of the sufferings of those men and women in those years. And so, as Jesus says, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. I read a uh, passage from uh, Rebecca St. James, a hymn, a song that she sang years ago at Uh, Ed and Suzanne's wedding yesterday in uh, the backyard there. It was a beautiful, wonderful experience of seeing God restore uh, this relationship. And uh, Rebecca St. James in this song says, you better give your life away before you lose it. I love that phrase. It just captures that paradox. You better give it away, you're about to lose it. If you give it away, you find it then you'll have life. But if you try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. There's a great Peanuts uh, comic in which uh, they're, the, the, they're, they're on the baseball field, which is one of my favorite spots in Peanuts. So Charlie Brown has his normal position on the mound. And he's looking back at Lucy. You know, she's the hapless outfielder. Um, and he says... Uh, the exact words, he yells to Lucy, that's a beautiful new glove, Lucy. And so she responds, thank you. How long do you think a glove like this will last? 
Second frame. Third frame shows her like this to catch a ball that's fallen behind her. You know, just totally nowhere close. And Charlie Brown, in answer to her question about how long her glove will last, about a hundred years. <laughs> He's thinking it's going to last forever because you're never going to use it. No ball is ever going to hit that mitt. You know. You see, you and I are to be used up for God. We're to be used for God. We're to be worn out for God. We're to be spent for the glory of Jesus. We're not here really even to preserve our lives, ultimately. We're here to say, here's my life, Lord Jesus. Use me. And I speak to myself as well as anybody. And you see, it's because we have rest in Him that we can risk our lives. It's because we have everything in Him and full restoration and its final manifestation and everything that leads to it that we can just spend ourselves because we're safe. And so Paul, speaking of his own ministry and those cohorts with him, we are afflicted in every way, 2 Corinthians 4, We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh." He wasn't really much for self-protection, was he? He wasn't much for self-protection. He wanted Jesus to be made known. So, I believe this passage is calling us to rest, but it's also calling us uh, to, to risk. But one of the main features, isn't it, of this passage is the covering that she asks for from Boaz. Uh, you are Redeemer. And so uh, she says to, to put out your garment. You could interpret it several ways or it, it means two things in the original. To spread your wing over your servant because it is used for a bird's wing. Uh, but it's also the corner of a garment. So it has that double meaning because in chapter 2 verse 12 he uses the same word as we said. Under his wings you've come to take refuge. Speaking of the wing of God. But now... She is asking Boaz to say, you be the wing of God for me. You be the refuge for me. And she's asking for him to throw his garment over her. And this was the regular practice uh, in that uh, world of indicating that you were going to marry someone. Notice God even uses this in Ezekiel 16. When he speaks of taking Israel for himself, he says, when I passed by you, And saw you, you were at the age for love, saying that you had reached puberty. It gets, by the way, Ezekiel, uh, it's it's pretty PG-13 as you read through it. But he says, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. You see, I covered your nakedness and protected you, and you would belong only to me. That's the point. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. It's the graphic picture of Israel being taken in in her helplessness and and God marrying her and cherishing her. 
And I think so, of course, about our being found by God. And we weren't so noble as Ruth. In our, though Ruth herself, you have to realize, initially came from the same place we come. And so her being taken by Boaz is the result of this pagan worshiper being transformed and now being presented and, and given to him. But we were foreigners for sure. We were alienated from God, Paul says. We were lying down with the enemy of God, so Paul says. Uh, we had an allegiance to self and not to God, to ourselves and not to others. And in Second Timothy, he says, you were held captive by him to do his will because you wanted to serve yourself. You were doing his will. You were dead in your trespasses, Paul says. But God threw his garment over us, seeing us, seeing our hearts better than we could ever or will ever see us, seeing the depth of our rebellion and the depth of our brokenness more than we could ever see. And still, before we ever knew him, in a sense, he threw his garment over us. It says that before the world, he loved us. Before the world, it says he foreknew us. Know is that marriage word, you know, that, that Adam knew Eve, intimacy. And it says before the world began, God knew us. Cast his garment over us. And he made sure in the creation and the providence of the world that he would draw us to himself. And you see... Those who know that love, that Hasid love, that faithful love, begin to show it to others. I love what uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes. Those who knew Boaz even a little would know that his covenant God must be a God of tenderness and compassion, of great sweetness and gentleness. We cannot hide what we really believe God is like. Please hear that. We cannot hide what we really believe God is like. Our personal disposition is an unending expression of our understanding of of, and trust in His character. And then he quotes, of all people, he quotes, and, and Kierkegaard's written many good things, but he quotes Kierkegaard. Notice what he says. The greatest danger is not that of a child, is not that his father or tutor, tutor should be a free thinker, like doesn't matter what you believe. That's not the greatest danger. It's not even his being a hypocrite. That's not the greatest danger. No, the danger lies in his being a pious, God-fearing man and the child being convinced of that But nevertheless, the child noticing that deep in the man's heart, there lies a hidden unrest which is never calmed. The danger is that the child in this situation is almost provoked to draw a conclusion about God, that God is not infinite love. That God is not infinite love after all. It's very important, you see, that we experience 
is putting his garment over us, that we taste that love deeply and continually, that we rejoice in it, that it thrills us, that we are in awe of it, and that this pours out for our children. That's why in Psalm 130, verse 4, a psalm that we sing, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared, that we may be in awe of you. And for believers, this is what happens. The love of Christ begins to persuade me and win me over. It wins my affections and my trust. It guards my heart from anxiety and fear. It gives me hope in every circumstance. It gives me comfort in life in the midst of grief and loss and death. I begin to admire that love and be in awe of that love. I want to imitate that love. I want to live that love out. Can you imagine being in a boat in the Pacific Ocean, uh, off the, uh, the coast, and suddenly you find yourself in this boat in the middle of a great pot of humpbacks. Oh, here goes another whale illustration. Uh, he just loves those things. So, but just think of this. They just come up almost out of nowhere and you realize you're right in the middle of their, their movement. And they're breaking the water and blowing scores of them all around you. And you're trembling with excitement. They're so close to you. you their, their eyes are kind of looking at you as they pass by you. And you're trembling because you think they could just wipe us out. It's just totally awesome. And all your family can do is just gasp and groan and cry out with screams of delight. And then suddenly when they're gone, you're just cheering. You know, you're just, yeah, that was awesome, you know, that the whales got that close. Now, can you imagine a 14-year-old girl just sitting there, bored look, almost perturbed, like the whales have interrupted her day? And she's like, whatever. They're just whales. She hardly looks at them. She hardly does anything about it. She just ignores it. And you think, of course, who knows why? Why You know, we go into her mode. But just the fact that she would not experience that, that she would miss the whales and the joy of it. And I wonder how often with the cross of Christ, we are no better than that 14-year-old. We got our arms crossed because of something that's bothering us. And the glory of Christ is not filling our lives. Christ is our kinsman redeemer. He became responsible for us and bore God's sin. And he offers to throw his cloak over you. Will you not with Ruth say, Oh Lord, spread your wing over me. For you are my Redeemer. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we have hearts that so easily are hardened to your mercy. And Lord, because we are hardened to your mercy, because we are not in awe of your covering, because we're not delighting in your love, because we are not resting in you, we find ourselves risking very little. We are so full of fears and self-righteousness, so taken up with various pleasures of the world that our pleasure in you pales in comparison. 
our delight in you is nothing practically. And our enjoyment of the things of this world are not part of our enjoyment of you many times. It's, in, it's a way that we ignore you. It's a way that we block you out. It's a way that we run from you. It's a way that we avoid you, not a way that we seek you in these things. Oh, Lord, heal our unbelief. Heal our hardness of heart. Heal our brokenness. Grant us faith. Grant us joy in you. Grant us to run after you all our days to taste and see that the Lord is good. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away Then shall my soul with rapture trace The wonders of thy love But the fool